part two of our 1984 versus Brave New World debate coverage today. And yesterday we focused on the underappreciated aspects of 1984. And today we're talking about Will Self's defense or argument in favor of Brave New World being more prescient for modern society. The first thing I want to focus on is how he portrays himself as a big fan, the biggest fan of George Orwell before arguing against George Orwell. The status of uh, Orwell in our culture is such that he's earned the epithet St. George. Uh, And I doubt that very, very few people entered the Emmanuel Center this evening with a preconception about Aldous Huxley, a strong idea about who he was and what he represented. But it's almost impossible to be an adult in this country without having a very, very firm view about Orwell. And I need to deconstruct your image of Orwell a bit before I even get to the business of Brave New World because I have a suspicion that many of you will be naturally prejudiced in Orwell's favour. Fair enough. I bow to no man or woman when it comes to admiration for George Orwell. He was an extremely fine uh, writer, journalist and broadcaster. Uh, You may be aware that a statue of him is being installed in the... uh, courtyard of new broadcasting house almost as we speak i focus so much on this persuasive technique even though it doesn't technically have to do with the content of will's argument because i think it's so effective and it's used very effectively here i am one of you he says i bow to no one in worship of george orwell's work and then he proceeds to argue against george orwell's work I bow, as I say, to no man when it comes to admiration for Orwell. And indeed, I've been to Barn Hill, where he wrote 1984. In fact, I wrote myself on the island of Jura for three months, purely in order to channel the influence of George Orwell. However, when it comes to actually being prescient about the state we're in now, I'm afraid 1984 is not a terribly good guide. You have to ask yourself... The simple reversal of the numerals, 1948, turned into 1984. All works of fictional prognostication, we know it's a truism, it's a pabulum, are really about their own era. So I ask you as an initial question, is 2017 more like 1948? In other words, are we a society recovering from a world war in which we face the prospect of another world war, or at any rate, some sort of deadlock between massive empires? Or are we in a condition as a country perhaps more akin to 1931, the years immediately after the stock market crashed, when you saw very much the same kind of pattern of deprivation in Britain that you're seeing now in 2017, with a kind of isolated and perhaps still relatively well-off group in the southeast of the country and considerable poverty and deprivation elsewhere. So let me just park that with you, dear audience. And the other thing I want to call your attention to, having blown away the sfumato of your Orwell worship, I hope that's now gone, okay, is to say to you, audience, I always think with an audience you can always address its highest common denominator or its lowest common denominator. You can either make fart jokes and allude to things that juvenile people find funny, or you can try and hit the highest common denominator and make some serious and important arguments. Well, judging from the ticket price for this event, (laughs) 
a subject I will return to later. <laughs> judging from its location, judging from your marvelously soigné appearance this evening, I think it's probably best to go for the highest common denominator. Because I suspect that you are all alphas, and at, at worst, beta pluses. <laughs> I don't think there are many epsilon semi-morons in the audience tonight at all. So tell me, alphas of London, are you suffering a life of constant deprivation at the moment, only drinking bathtub gin that stinks and trying to light cigarettes where the tobacco is so dry that they fall out of them as they, you raise them to your lips? Or are your lives in fact characterized by instant gratification, usually by consumption of one sort or another. I hope everybody's got their phone on airport or whatever it is mode, because if you didn't have it on airport mode, you might receive a little electric shock during the event. Yeah? So recent studies in cognitive science established that you get a little jolt of dopamine every time you get an alert on your mobile phone. Every time you push a button on it or a, or a computer console, you are rewarded. There is a pleasurable sensation. You will have noticed in the flow of your screen-mediated lives that there are a myriad of these little electric shocks going on throughout your day. The only difference between you and the children in Brave New World who are conditioned to hate flowers and beautiful things and books in that way is that your conditioning is happening while you're wide awake. Or are you? Is the current lifestyle of the consumer in fact a kind of waking dream? What Huxley understands only too well is conditions under what we might call late capitalism. In other words, the kind of neoliberal capitalist societies we live in now. What Huxley understood only too well was that in an economy that is defined by consumption and advertising is the form of behavioral conditioning, everybody will be perfectly pacific as long as their needs and their wants are conflated in their own minds. That is very much the world we're living in. You don't need to be a Marxist to understand that you're a commodity fetishist. You don't need to feel that you've been conditioned to be conditioned. I think that's the real genius of the dystopic future that Huxley summons up in Brave New World. There's no strife. There's no angst. The only angst has to be introduced by an agonist in the form of the savage who comes from outside the perfect and hermetic world of the one state. Orwell's dystopic future is so clearly based on the command economy of the Soviet Union. There's no real reference to production or how things are made. But in Huxley's world, the combination, it's true, that what he looked for in terms of technological advance was most clearly in the biological sciences. But think about it. The conjunction in Brave New World of large-scale genetic engineering and assembly line production equals the automation that is currently making most of the people in this hall tonight 
effectively unemployed in that we do not actually contribute to our own necessities. We do really useless jobs, none more useless than Adam and me. <laughs> I've got to be quick. We're under the gun. You're all on SOMA. Or quite a lot of you are. 11 million prescriptions for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors written in the last year in the UK. Statistically, at least 10% of this audience is on some kind of mood-altering drugs as I speak to you. Orwell didn't spot that one coming. Aldous did. And not just uh, things like Prozac and Siroxac, but the Oxycontin plague uh, epidemic in America at the moment, coming soon to a doctor's surgery near you. Prozac to get it up. Zoplicon to make it lie down again. I shouldn't imagine there's actually anybody in this room that hasn't got some chemical in their system at the moment. Antibiotics. They're a form of soma too. Really, they are. You live your lives in a kind of amniotic fluid of drugs. Orwell didn't see that. He's just got his lousy victory gin. But Huxley understood that technology is imminent in human being and that it determines the historical eras we live through. Permanent war versus no war. <coughs> Some might like to argue that we are still in an extended version of superpower conflict of some kind or another. Or certainly that the idea of permanent peace is ridiculous when we look at the mayhem all around us in the world. But get this, where you alphas are sitting right now, it's permanent peace. None of you have seen the least conflict in your lifetimes if you've been sitting here in zone one and two. Conflict goes on somewhere else. You watch it on your stereoscopic movies or your feelies and your brain chemistry, if you're an aggressive young man, makes you effectively experience the same thing as if you had inflicted violence. Huxley understood that this was the brave new world that was coming, a world in which young men sit in upstairs bedrooms pretending to kill and slaughter thousands, or a world in which five million people have died in the Congo in the last 15 or 20 years, so you can have that mobile phone in your pocket with its coltan in it. War for us nowadays is a spectacle that takes place in another country. Since 9-11, what, maybe half a million people have died in the Middle East, five million people have been displaced, failed states in Iraq, Syria, the Lebanon, Yemen. But it's really peaceful here in our newfound land, isn't it? That conflict doesn't really disturb our sense of civic peace. It's something going on. It's noises off for us. Again, I think Huxley understood that kind of world. He understood how a world of consumption and conditioning and advertising could insulate people from the reality and the real terms of their existence. I urge you, I urge you <laughs> to give Brave New World your vote. Thank you. And that was Will Self's argument for Brave New World. He obviously won the debate. Brave New World usually wins in debates against 1984, precisely because it appeals to the type of alphas that listen to debates for fun. But I still think it is very well argued and well-deserved to win.